Am I good now? All right. Well, good morning. It's a privilege to be back with you guys. Um, it's been a while since I've been here, um, but it's good to see you all again. Uh, if you have your Bible with you today, turn to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be uh, reading the first couple of verses in Exodus in chapter 20. So um, I'm going to read them, um, pray, and then we will get started on this message. So this is Exodus 20, uh, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again to have the privilege of preaching here at this church. I thank you for um, your redemption that you have given us in Christ. I thank you for the promised spirit that you have indwelled in us. And I thank you for your word that you have given us. We would be lost without it, without you. And so, God, I pray today that you would uh, use this time to sharpen us, glorify yourself. May we be encouraged to follow you more faithfully um, after today. And we pray that you would do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Justin said, you guys have been in the book of Exodus for a couple of months. And starting this off, we're going to talk about the first commandment today. Um, but we need to back up a little bit and go over some of the background information, um, just sort of review briefly on the occasion and the events of the Ten Commandments. So if you were to think about what would be the ten guiding principles of your life or what you would make other people do for you, what would some of those things be? I think about myself, I would probably say bacon at every meal would be on the top ten for sure because I love bacon, as you can tell. Um, I think number two would be mandatory college football on Saturdays, every Saturday, not just in fall, not just a little bit in winter, but every Saturday because I love college football. What would some of the ones that you would think of yourself? Would they be you're not going to worship anybody else but me. I am the most important person in your life, and everything that you do needs to correspond with me and my agenda. God says this in the Ten Commandments, in the very first one. You shall have no other gods before me. So why is it different whenever God says it than us? We need to review the Old Testament background. So um, let's review the unique place in redemptive history that the Ten Commandments have. Um, they are held in high esteem by Jews, Christians, and even non-Christians alike. Most ethical laws, religious and non-religious, are based upon these commandments. Why is that? Number one, they were given in a unique context. No other laws or commands were written by God's own hand in tablets of stone. God spoke to Abraham. He communicated to Moses through the burning bush before he gave his commands says on the morning of the third day this is in Exodus 19 on the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings in a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast 
so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of a trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai and the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. This setting showed both the power of God and instilled fear into the hearers. Our God is a consuming fire, and the setting is meant to arouse in us the seriousness of the message that is given to us. We have seen that um, there were trumpets and loud sounds and earthquakes. I don't know if you've ever been in an earthquake. I've been in just an aftershock. There was one that happened a couple of years ago in, in Wake Forest, and it was, it was terrifying. It was just a little bit of a shake. And these people experienced all these things, and God answered them in thunder. It's terrifying. These were words were written down by God's own hand. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice. He had it no more. He wrote them down on two tablets of stone, and he gave them to me. Exodus 31, 18 says that these words, these Ten Commandments, were written down by the very finger of God, so they're unique in their delivery. They're also unique in their generality. These laws, although given specifically to Israel, are applicable in all times to all persons everywhere. We still follow them today, so they still carry weight. Just because they're in their Old Testament doesn't mean that, oh, we have Jesus, we can ignore them. No. The, um, the church fathers, everyone throughout church history has affirmed the Ten Commandments and their place in redemptive history, and we need to, too. They are the standard by which all men will be measured. They are the first commands to be used when doing evangelism. When we think about, whenever we talk to people about Christ, when we talk to people about Jesus, we typically start from the Ten Commandments. We don't talk about, well, have you eaten shellfish this week? No, it's because these are the moral weight of the Old Testament, and um, our actions will be judged accordingly to them. Um, Because the earth and um, its fullness thereof belongs to God. All people are to be judged according to God's perfect commandments in these Ten Commandments. commandments. Um, They're also unique because these commandments make up the grand opus of the Old Testament, that the Lord God redeemed, rescued and redeemed a people from slavery and desires them to worship him in specific ways so that he alone gets the glory and the nations turn from their sin and worship him alone. Proper obedience to the law in worship should produce more proper worship. These laws are not meant for Israel alone or the church alone. The obedience to these laws is for both the blessing of the nation of Israel and the world. Exodus twenty twenty four, just a few verses down from where we read, says, In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. These commandments are unique in their later use in Scripture. The Ten Commandments are the foundational documents for ethics for both the Old and New Testaments. Moses expounds on them when giving the law to the people of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus gives an exposition of them in his Sermon on the Mount. Paul, in the book of Romans, when explaining the importance of the doctrines of grace through faith, says, Then what becomes of our boasting? 
it is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Uh, We see all throughout the Bible, all throughout church history, that these commandments need to be obeyed, not only for ourselves, but for the blessing of the world. We obey the law because it is good for us. A world without these laws would be a mess. Before we get into the, the main points of the sermon, I want you to think about the law in these two ways, order and wisdom. Order and wisdom, remember those two things. So just some illustrations to kind of help you think of laws as both um, order that is good and wisdom that is good. Uh, The first is traffic laws. These are given so that we would drive in a certain way so that we would not all die because dying is bad. Um, If given over to making traffic laws as we see fit or as we go along, it would be utter chaos on the roads with the largest and fastest cars thriving the most. So I don't know if you've ever traveled overseas at all, but I've spent some time in both the Philippines and in Russia. And if you've ever been in Russia, it is absolutely terrifying to drive on the roads. Um, Imagine a two-lane highway that has six cars on it, and the biggest car is the one that wins. That's Russia. It's terrifying. Chaos is not good, especially involves when our very especially when it involves our very souls. God gives us his commands so that we would have a moral anchor and not make shipwreck of our lives. If we just choose how we live, moment by moment, feeling by feeling, we're going to be a ship that is tossed by the waves. We're going to be a car that darts in and out of traffic and doesn't know what's around the corner. God gives us these laws for our good so that we would live and thrive. In a similar way, when we think about wisdom, um, If you have children, or you work with children, or you're around children, imagine they they got to choose dinner every single night. No exceptions. No exceptions. So the toddler in your family gets to choose what is at the dinner table every single night. And it's probably going to be dinosaur-shaped chicken nuggets. Because who doesn't love dinosaur-shaped chicken nuggets? Um, but they're probably not the best thing to eat every single day of our lives because we need nutrients from other things. We need fruits, we need vegetables, we need fats, we need a healthy, balanced diet. Um, But if given over to someone who doesn't have the wisdom to make those decisions, they're probably going to choose what's wrong. Laws and rules are wise because the Lord puts them over us because we do not know what is best for ourselves. But when we place ourselves underneath the law, when we obey instead of seeking to defy the commandments, that is when we will find freedom and life. God gives us the law because he is wise, and we need to have the commandments because we are wicked and will make terrible and sinful decisions when we have all the choices to ourselves for our own disposal. The law, the Ten Commandments, reveals the character of the lawgiver. These are not arbitrary suggestions to tack on to our life 
so that we would get to we so we would get what we want. God gave us the Ten Commandments so that we would follow His order and His wisdom for our lives and worship Him as He deserves and desires for us. So that's the background of the um, Old Testament and what I want you to think about as we get into the main points of the sermon. And there's only two. Um, there's only two points. The first point is is that we obey the first commandment because God has redeemed us. We obey the first commandment because God has redeemed us. Look again at Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is never from a place of our heart that we say, I need to get right with God, so I must obey these commandments. No, one of the main reasons why the law was given was to show mankind's utter impossibility of keeping the law. You and I cannot keep the law perfectly. We will break it today. We will break it tomorrow. We will break it every day of our lives because we are sinful people. We respond to God's redemption in obeying the law. That is the place of our motivation. It's not so that we can hamstring God and get what we want or we need to get right with God so we obey these commandments. No, God has redeemed us in Christ and given us that redemption. Therefore, we uphold the law and keep it because we want to be in a right relationship with him. And he has described that relationship in these ways so that we must obey him. So he says, or God says to um, Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 7, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Another way we can say these things is that none of us in here is special because of who we are in ourselves. We are special. We are chosen. We are redeemed because God first acted on his own behalf to save us. It's nothing that we did. It's nothing that we earned. It's nothing that we even would have done in the future. God elects and redeems those who are unworthy. Paul says it in Romans that God justifies the ungodly. You and I are here in this room today, and if we are believers, it is because the sovereign grace of the Lord has enacted in our lives to cause us to believe. It's not anything that we've done or anything that we do. It's solely because of his love and because of Christ's sacrifice. And we need to approach the law from this perspective if we have any hope of trying to keep it. God always acts first. And the command to not have any idols is a response to his redemption. For the Israelites, their redemption was centered around the exodus from Egypt and from slavery. Our redemption is from spiritual slavery. We haven't been given bricks to build we haven't been whipped with with chains but we have been under spiritual oppression and spiritual slavery to sin paul says in romans chapter 6 verses 17 and 18 
But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient to the heart of the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. The purpose of this redemption is worship. At the beginning of the books of Exodus, the Lord says to Moses, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Redemption is always from sin and slavery and death to God and life and peace. Why is, so, why is God so concerned with our worship? Why is he so concerned with Israel's worship? It's because um, that is the way in which, um, sorry, let me back up. Why does God not just let us do what we want and love us anyway, despite of what we do and never expect us to change? We think about um, the world and what they expect of a relationship. It says, love me despite how much bad I do to you. And don't judge me for it. You're going to love me how I want to be loved. And everything's on my terms. And everything is dictated by me. That's not the way that our relationship with God works. Um, think about it in this way. Um, it's the coworker who never helps us out, but takes all the credit for an important project. It's the brother or sister who doesn't do the chores, but still wants the treat for doing a good job. We know these types of people. We are these types of people. So why does God require our correctly placed worship? The first reason is his promise to Adam and Abraham. God made a covenant with both men that he would stamp out the serpent and give Abraham descendants like stars in the sky. God elected and chose Israel in part because he made promises to Adam and Abraham. The Lord always keeps his promises. The second reason is God is concerned with his glory and will not give it to any other. He's not going to share it with us, and he's not going to share it with a false god. Because redemption is costly, our worship should, in conjunction, be costly. God gave up his own son for us to be in a relationship with him. There is no other way for this to take place. He accomplished this so that we would be a people unto himself and display the important place that he holds in our lives. Isaiah 42.8 says it this way. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will give to no other. The New Testament puts it in these terms. You were once slaves of sin, and now you are bondservants of Christ. Bondservant is a different term for a servant, but even the term servant really falls short. Um, A servant is free to leave after he's done his task. After he does his job, He can leave. He can stay if he chooses, but he's free to leave. Um, A slave, however, is not free to leave. He is bound to the one that purchased him. And the one who purchased him, the redeemer, the other, is free to dictate the terms of the relationship. We always, we typically view service as something that is to be avoided. Um, We want the seat of honor at an event. We want to be in charge. No one's going to tell me what to do. 
God, however, desires us to be his bondservants precisely because people who have been given eternal life in the end will get God. Over and over in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, God is shown to be displaying his own glory for the world to see. Since he is the most important, most powerful, most worthy being in the universe, as his agents in the world to display his glory, we should look like him. I want to get in your, in your minds and in my mind a picture of an ambassador, a picture of an ambassador to a, a foreign state. When a representative from our government goes to a place overseas, they represent our government. That's the definition of an ambassador. You want that person to be a genuine replica of what they're going to be in place of, represent, to be an ambassador for. Um, when you buy a toy for your kid, you don't want it to be a cheap knockoff. Because why? It's going to fall apart. It's going to break. It's going to disintegrate. We should not be a cheap knockoff version of what God is. Our task, one of the tasks that we have been given in the Christian life is to look like God. And that comes at, at great cost, but also great pleasure, because we get God in the end. God longs for us to worship and represent him in the world so that he would get the glory and others would see and turn from their sin and worship him. It's not so for your own benefit that you keep the law. It's for others as well. You don't follow God just for yourself. You follow God to bring other people to him as you are going to him. Um, a servant who finds other people that are like you and brings them to the table. That's what the Christian life is. We need to remember that redemption precedes worship. Obeying the law, the first commandment, all of it, all of this is worship. I think Justin said that one of the um, themes of Exodus is worship, that God would redeem his people out of the land of slavery into the promised land so that they would worship him. We should not think of these laws as, oh, I need to do this, or God's going to get me. Um, no, our, our motivation springs from, I was dead in my trans trans trespasses and sins with no purpose in life. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for me and give me eternal life. Therefore, because of God's work, I seek to obey. I seek to live under the commandments. It's wise to live under the things that God has placed in our lives so that we would flourish and display his glory for other people to see. People, I talk to, to people at my job. Um, I'm currently working right now at a, a credit union as a, as a teller. And I work with um, non-Christians and people who are non-Christians who walk in all the time. And I, I talk to them about how I am a, uh, was a seminary student, and now I'm seeking to be a pastor somewhere. And they talk about, well, what, what's God's will for my life? You know, I, I've just met them, and I've informed them that I'm a preacher, and I'm suddenly supposed to know exactly what God wants for them. Um, it's, it's a strange phenomenon. I don't really understand it, but people are people. Um, and what I typically refer to them, if we have time, if it's slow, if we don't have a line to the door, um, 
is, well, have you read your Bible? Have you spent time with God in his word? We try to do all these different things of praying and meditating and listening for God's voice in it. And there's, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that if that is in conjunction with time spent in his word. Um, we can do a lot of things to try and get out of listening to God's voice in the scriptures. That's the primary way that he has communicated to us. So we need to be obedient to it and read it and follow it. So that was the first, um, the first point that we should um, respond to God's redemption in a way that honors him. Um, John Calvin said it this way. For this is the rule of our life, that we should not merely inquire about what he says to us, but that we should renounce our own desires and attachments, and we should ask for nothing except to please him and be governed by him and his justice. So we read the Bible, we follow these Ten Commandments so that we would be governed by God. So that was the first point. The second point is we obey the first commandment because God desires our loyal love. We obey the first commandment because God desires our loyal love. I'm going to read it one more time. You shall have no other gods before me. I've said it before in this sermon. I'll say it again. God is a jealous God. He desires for us to have the same love he has for us and himself. The most loving thing that he can do is give us more of himself. The most loving thing that he can do is give us more of himself. Not get what you want, not get what I want, but give us more of himself. And that is what the aim of the Ten Commandments set out to do, to guide and guard our hearts into a deeper love for our Redeemer. Do we think of the law in this way as for our good? I know in my life there have been times where I have not thought in these categories. I've thought, God, why do you have these rules? My life would be so much easier if I didn't have them, if I didn't have to be constrained by the ethical and moral weight of these laws. But no, these are for my good. These are for your good. And we should see them as wonderful things to be obeyed. One of the most telling attributes of a believer is someone who now loves and cherishes the command of God. So as you think about your life, as you think about your life the next couple of weeks, as, we, as you go through the Ten Commandments, think about it in this way. Do I have a love for these commandments, or am I still trying to disobey them? Is my heart motivated to get closer and love the God who has redeemed me? Or am I in the place where I'm saying, no, God, despite what you have done in Christ to set me free from sin, I'm going to keep separating myself away from you because I don't want what you have to say. If you've been changed, worship God by obeying him. I need to do that. Justin needs to do that. You all need to do that. Every one of us here needs to follow God in the way that he has prescribed for us, and that is by following his commands. Another way of saying this, the New Testament gives in 1 Corinthians says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Are you still a natural person? 
do you still seek to live in a way that dishonors God? That's the biggest question you and I have to answer today. Have I been changed to love what I used to hate? Paul can say that. Can you? The Exodus, in part, was used to demonstrate God's superiority over the other gods of the Egyptians. They had different gods for varying things in their society. Amon-Ra was the god of the sun. Osiris was the god of agriculture. Anubis was the god and protector of the dead. Hathor was the god of women, love, beauty, and pleasure in music. Horus was the god of the sky. Seth was the god of evil and chaos and fear. So in order for us to please each god, if we were Egyptians and we were living in their society, in order for us to please them, or to seek the blessing of the sun or the moon or the Nile, each god was prayed to and a sacrifice was made to them. God, the true God, our God, Israel's God, however, is one. We do not worship the sun God, but we worship the God who made the sun. The Exodus teaches the Israelites and us that the true and living God of the scripture is is far and above any man-made God that has no real power. God does not want us um, and, must, and we must consistently remind us and ourselves not to have any other gods before him because when left to our own devices, we will make the sun or the moon or the weather or our car or our house, anything in this world, into a God and to believe that that is the way that I get what I want and I sacrifice to it. False religion and false gods are an exchange of goods. I give you a sacrifice, and you give me the blessing that I seek. God does not deal with us in this way. So I think about it in, in this. If I was to have a conversation today with, with Ra, with the sun god of the Egyptians, like, Ra, I really need the sun to come out next week, especially because of all the rain that we've just had and the rain that I had where I'm from in North Carolina. I think we had over six or seven inches at my house. It was bad. We need the sun to come out next week to make the crops grow. Here's a token of my faith and hope in you that you will do what I want. Appreciate it, buddy. We invoke the God's favor by sacrificing to it. That's not the way that God is in relation to, relationship to us. Um, why would have God given us this commandment to the people? Um, to remove the false gods from our lives because we fall short of this all the time. Um, we saw, um, you guys saw either a week ago or two weeks ago um, that Israel was impatient and made a golden calf and bowed down and worshipped it um, far too often because we have to wait on God or are sinful. We we choose to make gods of our own design and our own being. Um, when we look at Israel, when we look at ourselves, the command really almost seems too simple. Just get rid of false gods. That's it. Um, but yet they and us constantly break it. Um, in his commentary on Exodus, Doug Stewart lists nine reasons as to why idolatry was so appealing. I'm going to read them all through. Um, it was guaranteed. It was selfish. 
It was easy. Ancient religion demanded little in way of ethical standards or personal sacrifice. As long as you do your duty, you pray and sacrifice to that God, that God will bless you. It was convenient. There were multiple instances of, of, of temples and sacrificial places all around Egypt. Israel was given um, the one that they had. It was normal. Israel was the odd man out, per se. No other religion was like theirs. It was logical. It was pleasing to the senses. It was indulgent. Worship typically involved meat and drink as a part of the sacrifice. So worship became a party. And it was erotic. During ritual worship, it was believed that if worshipers took the parts of Baal and Asherah and had sex, it would stimulate the deities in heaven to have sex. And when the gods and goddesses had sex, it meant procreation, which meant earthly blessings like fertility, rain, health, and good harvest. This is why prostitution became common at religious sites and why God rebuked Israel for adopting the same practice, both with heterosexual and homosexual temple prostitutes. So we may think, how in the world would Israel do such a thing and bow down to an image of a bull? But when false gods are packaged in such a way, it becomes much more plain to see how they and us are swayed. It's far too easy for us to have other gods, whether they be gods of another religion, over making a thing bigger in our heart than our, than our God. Um, when we think about it in those categories that I just listed, it's convenient for us to trust in ourselves or our possessions more so than the grace that God has given in his timing. It's logical, based upon the world standards, to not believe in God because there's all this suffering and God is way up there and we're way down here. How can he be in connection with us? It's pleasing to the senses because everything in um, our world says not to worship God as he is fit to be worshipped. Um, just because I'm up here and you're down there does not give me any excuses to disobey God, God's commands. We all struggle and sin in various ways, and each one of us, um, the application here of this command will take different forms. So think about your own life. What do you dream about? What do you say, God, if I only had this, my life would be perfect? Or God, don't take away that because then I won't be happy. These things are the idols of our heart that we worship. Um, they may not look like a golden calf, but they're equally as wicked. We need to destroy them. Whatever is in your life, in my life, that can take the place of God as the most important is an enemy of God, and it must be destroyed. Even good things can become enemies. I want to take, for example, sex. It is a good and blessed thing that God gave us sex. Our desire for it is not wrong in itself, but that desire must be stewarded in appropriate and holy ways according to God's commands. When I view sex as a blessing from God and seek to satisfy that desire with my wife, the Lord is honored and, receive, and I receive the double pleasure of sex and the joy of obeying God. But when that desire becomes a God or an idol in my heart, I seek to obey it in any way that I can, and my desire for it becomes what is wrong. That is when pornography and masturbation and infidelity, infidelity enter the picture, and I sin against God. 
Because when I am tempted and given to temptation and sin, what I am saying is, God, even though you've given me life in Christ, right now you aren't good enough. So I'm going to satisfy my desire for sexual pleasure in a way that you have forbidden, that you have expressly commanded in your word for me not to do. I reject you, and I bow down to the God of sex because it is better than you. God's commands to us to not have any other gods before him because when we do have other gods, we spit in his face and we say that he is not good enough. So wrapping up um, these two points um, into um, application for us, um, how do we follow this command? How do we get rid of these other gods? Um, I think um, these commands have both a, a positive and negative connotation. Um, the negative is what we're commanded to give up, false gods. And the positive is not really explicit, at least in this text from the very words, but it is displayed throughout the rest of Scripture. The positive connotation of this text is that we get God. Um, Colossians 3 puts it this way. We're commanded to put to death what is earthly in us and put on the things that are above as God's chosen ones. So we see the motivation to follow his commands and we're commanded to get rid of the things that defile, that defile us and anger him. So we make war against the false gods that are in our hearts and minds and replace them with the God of the scriptures, the God who is behind the good thing that we seek, um, the God that is in place of the um, desire for money or status or power or sex or whatever it is that you may fall into temptation to. It's going to look different for each one of us here, but the application is the same. To put off and to put on. Other gods will always leave us empty. They may not do it temporarily. If sin didn't in some form feel pleasurable, we wouldn't do it. Um, when I get angry and seek to control things in my own timing, it feels good because it, it senses, it, it feels like I have power. It feels like I am in control and I dictate what is around me. But what I lose when I do that is the sovereign peace and countenance of God upon me when I simply obey and follow and trust his timing. Um, God desires our loyal love because he desires to give us himself. He brought Israel out of Egypt not so that he would keep them from these things, keep them from false gods. He's not dangling the proverbial carrot out in front of them, saying, you'll never have this. His desire is for our worship, that we would be separate from those things that are around us. He primarily desires to give us himself, and Christ is the most precious gift that he has given. So, in closing today, um, Christ and his redemption is everything. It's everything in our lives. It's the reason why we're here today. Um, so if you have not believed in him, if you're still um, following the lusts and passions of your own heart, 
um, I encourage you to talk to, to Justin or myself or, or someone that you know to be a believer and, and trust. And for those of us who are here, who are believers, the command is still the same, to remove the false gods, to trust Christ, to love him and cherish him and honor him and worship him as the most supreme thing in our lives. Um, because when we follow other false gods, that is what is on the throne of our hearts. Instead of God, it's something else. And for us to be in right relationship with him, that will not do. So repent today. Repent, trust Christ, believe in him, and love him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word you've given us. We would be lost without it and without Christ. So I pray here today that um, for both believers and non-believers, that we would repent of the things that we have followed and seek to live under your love and joy and providence, trust your will for our lives, and follow your commands that are good, that are orderly, that are wise, because you have redeemed us and you desire our loyal love. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.